0: Please have a seat. Well, as Peter so we're looking at uh, Christ Alone today, one of our series on the five solas of the Reformation, looking back to the 16th century and the massive change that happened there. And some of you might be thinking, why? Uh, what's the point in trying to apply 16th century answers to 21st century questions? After all, I went to the doctor, you wouldn't be happy if he applied a 16th century remedy to whatever you had wrong with you. Well, uh, human beings are always the same. Well, it's our human nature doesn't change. And the course of these five weeks, what we're actually doing is giving first century answers to 16th century questions, because we're going to look at the Bible to answer those questions. And because the Bible is God's word to human beings, it will be always relevant to humanity, which makes them actually eternal answers to perpetual questions, and I hope you see the relevance as we go on. So forget the time difference, like that great British Bake off judge did when she tweeted the winner. If you're a human being this morning, then remembering the Reformation's biblical answers will be incredibly helpful. And if you're not, I can't help you. But I'd like us to do three things this morning. I wanted to appreciate the problems that the Reformers were addressing I want us to look at the way they saw the Bible answered those problems. And I want to consider how we respond today. So we're going to go uh, back in time, 1517. Then we're going to look at God's word. And we're going to look at 2017. So hopefully all this will work well. Let's go back in time to 1517. Uh, back then in, uh, in Germany, as well, the average Joe was a Christian because everyone in Europe uh, thought that they were born one. Uh, people were Average people—they uh, did their ordinary, everyday lives—but they all thought that they were Christians. Let's zoom in on this particular average Joe and consider what his life was like. I think it must be a Monday morning. He's not looking very happy uh, at his workplace there, but he would have gone to church like everybody did because there was only one church, and it was the authority on all things spiritual and material. Uh, Joe didn't own a Bible, and if he did, he probably wouldn't have be been able to read it. It would have been written in Latin. The church interpreted the Bible for him and instructed him and his family about life uh, and human nature and God and how to be saved. So uh, Joe knew that rebellion against God was sin. It's a fundamental problem for every human being. It required justice. It required a sentence to be passed for the crime and the penalty be, to be paid. And he knew that Jesus had died on a cross to pay that price. And so Joe was baptised, because that's what the church said you needed to do. That was the point, the church said, at which God washed people clean from their sin. And in doing so, it meant you were forgiven for all sin up to that point. You were completely clean. And God's grace and favour would mingle with you somehow from that point on in your life. and uh, mingles your own nature so that you now have the power to improve, the power to, to live according to God. But of course, you also had the opportunity to fail to do that. This is a really relevant question, isn't it? I assure every Christian at some point or other has thought to themselves, well, I know Christ forgave me by dying on the cross for all that's past, But what about now? What about the future? Well, the church told Joe he should go to confession with a priest, and the priest would set him a penance, uh, some way of paying for your wrongdoing. Anything from saying some prayers to going on a pilgrimage or anything in between. That's the way you paid for, for your sin. And if it isn't enough, if your spiritual bank balance is in the red zone when you died, well then, Joe wouldn't go to heaven, the church told him. If he committed a mortal sin, he'd go to hell. But if he had committed other sins, well, he'd need to spend some time in a place called purgatory. It's a horrible place to be. And he'd be there until he was purged, until all his sins were paid off. Only then would St. Peter let Joe into heaven, the presence of a holy God. Now, the thought of uh, purgatory is pretty horrendous. And the possibility that you could shorten your time there all the time a loved one is a really powerful hope and it makes Joe desperate. So Joe and his family say prayers for the dead. They do everything they should do. They pray to the saints. They even perhaps visit relics. The bones or clothes of saints and the like. Even if it costs them money which it often did. Anything to shorten or escape purgatory. Here's a line drawing of uh, Pope Leo the 16th, sorry, 10th in the 16th century, displaying the bones of St. Peter. Actually, it's not. It's 2013. You see, these issues are still relevant today, aren't they? And the church could also grant indulgences. These are specific things uh, for good works and uh, circumstances, and they could sort of draw uh, uh, on the righteousness of Christ somehow that he's earned for you and sort of loan that to you to make up the difference. A partial indulgence would, buy a certain number of days, penance you didn't have to do. A plenary indulgence would eliminate purgatory entirely until you next sinned. So if Joe could get a plenary indulgence for a loved one who had died, they were straight to heaven. Well, in between Pope Leo X and Albert of Brandenburg, indulgences were sold aplenty in Germany. Half the money would go to Albert, who was buying his way through political posts, and the other half to the Pope to build his new chapel in Rome, some little place called St. Peter's Basilica. And so into Joe's town rolls the Barnum and Bailey of the 16th century, a travelling Dominican monk that was Johann Tetzel. What a great name, Johann Tetzel. He was a a popular, crowd-pleasing preacher. If you think sort of monk meets snake oil salesman, you might be vaguely in the right area. And Tetzel was authorised to sell these indulgences in Germany. He travelled through the towns offering pre-signed pieces of paper. Indulgences. And every uh, sales pitch needs a, a, a little catch line. So his was, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. What a promise. What a promise. Well, Joe would have to be pretty selfish not to empty out the family coffers to buy one for his dear departed mum, or whoever it was. It was a really shameless uh, act on the part of the church. It makes that parliamentary cash for questions thing a few years ago pale into insignificance. This is literally cash for heaven. And this was, I think, the final straw for Martin Luther when he uh, pinned his 95 statements to the cathedral door. He wanted these things corrected. He wanted the church to reform its ways on indulgences. But that ended up being the tip of the iceberg. And all sorts of other things came out as well. Let me read you two of his uh, points. They preach only human doctrines, i.e. it's not from God, who say that as soon as the money clinks in the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. They said, these indulgent preachers are in error who say that a man is absolved from every penalty and saved by papal indulgences. Luther recognized the problem. He recognized the circumstances under which Joe and others were in at the time. What they were being told and what they are being sold was wrong. See, Joe was accepting what Christ has done, but he was told he needed to do the rest by his own efforts. Jesus had sort of driven him to base camp and given him ropes and crampons, but he had to climb the mountain now. And a bit of an odd bit of spiritual math- mathematics here, but by adding to Jesus, they were really taking away from him. Now I know, don't deny it, some of you are sitting here this morning already having thought about planning Christmas dinner. Yeah, yeah a, few, a few of you are looking guilty already. Uh, Some of you are looking guilty now because you haven't planned Christmas dinner already. It's November. Don't worry about it. But at some point you will. Imagine uh, you won a competition under which your favourite celebrity chef, this may be Jamie Oliver, would come and cook Christmas dinner for you on Christmas Day for as many people as you needed. Wouldn't that be a fantastic thing? Now imagine coming halfway through the the cooking process and uh, looking around and deciding you, you want to add some herbs to the turkey. And You decide to put an OXO cube in his gravy bubbling away on the stove. You you put a jar of supermarket brand cranberry sauce on the table as well. What are you doing? By adding to his work, you're insulting him, aren't you? You're making him out to be less than the professional chef he is. You might as well get the whole hog and eat turkey twizzlers in front of him. By adding to what Jesus had done, they made him less. By thinking that his work on the cross needed more, they made it a smaller rescuer, rescue than it was, which made him a smaller rescuer. Here's a, a painting by Peter uh, Van, um, Van de Weyen. I think I pronounced that correctly. Uh, it's a great painting, is it? And you might say, well, here's a church painting. It's sort of Jesus right at the top and centre. What a fantastic uh, view to have and people doing things in the bottom. But actually, if you look at where the action is in the picture, uh, it's all down the bottom end here. It's, it's these seven uh, points of grace in the church. It starts on your birth on the left-hand side, all around to your death on the right-hand side. It pictures your entire life within the remit of the church. And what you do in the church and the things you must do in the church. And you zoom in on what you do and you see Christ disappears at the top there. He's not actually front and centre. He's lifted up and out of the way. Another reformer uh, pointed out that making him less is uh, actually a complete rejection of Jesus. John Calvin said this about it. It inflicts signal dishonour upon Christ. It buries and oppresses his cross. It consigns his death to oblivion. It's like it never happened. And takes away the benefit which comes to us from it. He's right. You add to Christ's work and you make him smaller, which is actually to make him nothing at all. 1517, Joseph wanted to be sincere and honest and hardworking person who would do all he had to do the right thing. But the church gave him no Christ, at all. So what happened? Well, let's turn to God's word. Let's do what the reformers did. They turned to the Bible, and they saw that the indulgers were indeed the tip of the iceberg. There are many places we could turn to see this, but I've chosen Hebrews ten for today. If you've got it open in front of you, that will be very helpful indeed. And just to give you a bit of background, because jumping in the tenth chapter of the book of Hebrews is talking about the Old Testament law. It's not about the medieval church. So the temple and animal sacrifices prescribed in the Torah. And the priests, it mentions the priests of the Old Testament, not the priests and monks of Luther's day. And just to give you some background here, this is, um, this is what it says about the Old Testament and the system of forgiveness before Jesus came. It says this, uh, look, temple and priests and sacrifices actually point out that they aren't effective. Why? Because they have to be repeated. If you repeat something, then it clearly hasn't done the job. If I say to some lad who's handed his maths homework and say, you'll need to do that again, he and I both know what I'm not saying is, that was so good, I'd like you to do it again so I can have the pleasure of marking it all over again. I'm saying that was rubbish. You haven't done the job. If you were to you know, have a bone reset or some operation and you came around for your anaesthetic and the surgeon was there saying, right, no, that was fine, yeah, yeah, we'll, um, we'll do it again next week. You go, no, that's all you want to hear. You want to hear the job is done, it's over, it's finished, it's complete. But if you repeat it, clearly it isn't. And the second thing that the Old Testament sacrifices did was they pointed us towards Jesus by pointing to their inadequacies. So, if I need a new coach for my sports team, I might say, look, the current guy, has got a terrible losing record. Uh, he just isn't passionate about rugby. His voice isn't loud enough. His name isn't Welsh enough. His accent isn't Guildford enough. His wife isn't Boo enough. Or <laughs> well, by point of the inadequacies, who do you think I'm talking about that I, I need? I need... Well done, Somebody said it out loud, well done. One person hope the rest of you were thinking the same thing. The failings of the Old Testament point towards what we do need. We need Jesus. I'm just going to look at verses 8 to 10 this morning, which explain that little quote from Psalm 40 and how the psalmist is looking forward to Jesus. So read with me. Verse 8, I'll have it up on the screen as well. i those things as well. I'm behind. First he said, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them though they were offered in accordance with the law. So religious activity fails in the Old Testament, even when done properly, to the letter. It can't please God when I mean, it can't justify his anger at sin. God can't be pleased. He can't turn to us with pleasure because the problem of sin is still there. Our hearts still reject him, and we've wronged him. And then he said, verse 9, Here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. The psalmist is rejoicing that actually there is somebody who can do God's will. There is somebody who can save people in the way that God wants to. And the old failing system is done away with because the new one actually works. There is someone who can satisfy that demand of justice on God's part, who can do the impossible and atone in every way for people who rebel against God. And so in comes Jesus, a man born in a barn. From up north, an occupied nation that was barely noticeable in a vast empire, a hint of scandal around his birth, a family who didn't understand him, with no money to his name, who'd likely never reached 40, never married, and had only his clothes to leave behind. But in the opening sentence of the book of Hebrew, he's described this way: "God has spoken to us by his Son." whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He provided purification for sins and then took a seat at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Along comes Jesus. He is no small Christ and what does this man from Nazareth and this son from heaven do he actually satisfies God's anger against sin have a look at verse 10 and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all I just want to take a moment to go through one phrase at a time through this verse here because it's helpful help would have been helpful to the 16th century it's helpful for us this morning Firstly, we have been made, we have been made, it's past tense, it's complete, it's done, it's dusted. If you do something and then sit down, it's because it's, it's job done. Uh, the world high jump record is two metres, 45 centimetres. Uh, I once saw a high jumpers jump, it was an amazing thing to see them, they get sort of five goes to get the maximum height they can. But if someone uh, strolled into the stadium, jumped to four metres and landed, what would they do next? They put their tracksuit on and goes it down. They've won the gold medal. There's no way anybody can beat that jump. We're told in verse 12 that uh, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. Job done. Made holy, we're told. We have been made holy, completely forgiven, with a standard of righteousness that meets God's character made holy he's the only one about whom the word holy can be rightly used it doesn't say we were made a bit better we were made quite good we were retrofitted for ethical conduct it says made holy and through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ the only way a, a criminal's crime can be dealt with is actually if they serve the sentence the only way to make a sacrifice that allows all the guilt of a human being to be dealt with properly is to use the person as the sacrifice. The Jesus who went to the cross was as human as you or I. And yet, the only way one person could offer himself for another, let alone the sins of the whole world, is if he is as God as God is the way There's no unfairness in the substitution, is there? Because the one giving the punishment isn't fooled, he isn't cheated, he's actually taking it upon his own son. God within himself takes on our own sin. How else is that an eternity of God's wrath for many people could be put into a finite span of minutes if it weren't an infinitely valuable sacrifice? What other seat could Jesus be given after all that than the one at the right hand of the Father. You see, when we stop and we have a look at the cross, it's like, it's like a, a, an infinitely valuable diamond. You've stopped and looked at a diamond, brilliantly cut, all the different facets. You could spend ages just looking at each aspect of it. Brilliant in its depth and wonder. If we don't think much of the cross this morning, I suspect it because we don't spend much time at it. I know that's what's true of me. It can become verbiage on our lips rather than wonder in our heart. The cross of Jesus, properly understood, shows us no small Jesus, no lesser Christ. So we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What a relief if Joe had understood this back in the 16th century This is an unrepeatable action. One event for all people, all circumstances, and for all time. The forgiveness that Jesus earns is the only thing in the universe which is actually one size fits all. You've been to a shop and seen a bunch of of gloves and hats or something that says one size fits all. I once saw some trousers that said one size fits all. I mean, lycra is good, but that can't be true. Well, Jesus' death is the only thing when it says one size fits all, it really means it. Whatever you've done, whatever you've thought, whatever the state of your heart today, even if you're, you're sitting here, a Christian many years, feeling your heart is cold and hypocritical and guilty. Well, Jesus died for you once for all. Nothing else will do, and you need nothing else. What would you hold back from such a great saviour as this? Give your stubborn soul a kick this morning if it needs it, and say that you need to tell this Jesus that he is the Christ you need. And that one death has done everything, the past and the present and the future. There is no state of heart or word from your mouth or action in your life that God did not already know about when he sent Jesus. There is nothing about you that can surprise God today, nothing that he forgot to include when Jesus went to the cross. We're going to have bread and wine a little later in the service. Uh, some people uh, would regard that as a, as a reenactment, somehow a connection to the death of Christ, a, a way of performing it again in some way or other, some mystical way. That's not what it is. It's It's bread. It's wine. It's stuff you can buy in the shops. It has no no special purpose. By taking it this morning, you won't make yourself more holy. But if it helps you remember Christ and know you're amongst a family, around a table, sharing a meal together because you're trying to remember Christ together, then it is a great thing to do. Particularly remembering this Christ. By that will we be made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. If only the Church of the Middle Ages had taken God's word seriously as the authority about God, this is just one of many places they could have gone to see that Jesus is the one sacrifice they need, and they need nothing else. And we can thank God today, can't we, that He led Martin Luther and John Calvin and many others not just to read the truth, but to fight for it under difficult circumstances so that other people could hear it too and see it for themselves as they open their Bibles and that we can have that today. Well, if the problem of middle age was they had to add to Christ, then uh, thinking about our society today, I think it's pretty obvious that most people would regard it as having run out of PowerPoint slides. Huh. Most people regard it as having, uh, we need less than Christ. Our society subtracts rather than adds to what Christ has done. Our world says, well look, uh, sin, it's a really old-fashioned term, it's outdated. God, well, me might exist, I don't quite know. Um, if there's divine justice, then we hope it's people like Harvey Weinstein or Kevin Spacey. The bullies and the dregs of society it can't possibly mean me. Jesus could be your, your guide or your example, but you need much more than him. No, if you're going to be happy and fulfilled as a person, you'll need uh, money, a lifestyle that suits you, perhaps some mindfulness or some exercise, whatever it is that creates a fulfilled, happy person in you. Jesus, they say, oh, he's not all you might think he is. They subtract. But as we've seen this morning from the Bible, it says Christ alone is who we need. Whatever your bank balance your family, your job, your health, or your lifestyle this morning, only Jesus is the way back to a father who will turn to you with goodness and love rather than judicial anger. He's enough when it all falls apart and when it's all going well. Is your spiritual life in full gear this morning? Well, it's so easy to just to add that on to the cross. It is, isn't it? If that's you this morning, then don't be so arrogant. Don't be so arrogant to think that your deeds weigh anything compared to the work that the Son of God has done for you. Is your spiritual life floundering this morning? Well, it's easy to think that somehow we must subtract from what Christ has done. If that's you this morning, then don't be so arrogant to think that your sin could ever possibly outweigh The work that the Son of God has done for you on the cross. See, what we can't do is look to Jesus for our salvation and then look on Monday to our moral to-do list. Look to our, our Christian fulfillment of our duties. When we look to the cross, it must teach us everything about how we then act. I can't turn to a different place understand that's why so many epistles in the new testament start with all about jesus and then they move on to how we live then as a result when i consider my family dealing with my boss praying for my children or hanging how i how how i hang out with my friends at school i must look to jesus and him alone not some separate smuggled it under the wire list of goodness And let's face it, the church over the centuries wandered away from the truth about Christ. But what about us as a church today? What about CEC? Having evangelical in the name is great, but does that really do anything for us? And I know that there are uh, perhaps senior people in the church who have been here a long time uh, who have fought and sought their way through to keeping Christ and the cross at the center of this church. And thank you. What a brilliant thing to do. Let me say to you with the greatest respect, it's not over. It's not over. You don't get to sit down like Christ did. Uh, This uh, battle isn't over because it's been thought out once only or because you have great leadership. Can I challenge you? How are you helping the generation below you pick up these same questions, the same struggles about making Christ the center of all that we do? in services, in prayer meetings, everything that we do, in our planning, in our finances. How are you passing that on? It's not something we can step away from. If you're someone who's come into this church, uh, as I have, you've found a place where the Bible is taken seriously and Christ is honoured, which is brilliant. It's wonderful. But it didn't just happen. And nor is it perfect. If you're going to be a part of it, then how are you going to make sure it's not Christ plus Creeping in over the years, all Christ minus. In a home group, in conversation, in serving on a rota, how will you contribute to that? And young people, uh, teenagers, students—you might regard yourself as being on the bottom rung of the ladder. Surely no one expects anything of me just yet. Perhaps serving on a, a tea and coffee rota—I'm here to be fed. Well, no. Actually, you're here to make sure, to check, to double-check that everything has been said and thought and planned is actually from the Bible. It's going to honor Christ and him alone. That's your job. You don't wait until you're in some kind of ministry role when you're older. You must be doing that now. See, a spiritual reformation in the 16th century was a rebuilding from the ground upwards. But in our day, it is a constant work for all of us. Unless we move towards Christ, we will slip away from him. So it's not just a case of asking each one of us this morning, is Christ, Christ alone in your heart? It's also asking all of us to work together to make sure that he alone is the centre of our church. Otherwise, we're not that much different than the church of the 16th century. Let me pray. Father God, we do thank you so much for being able to open your word this morning and see that uh, Christ's death on the cross is amazing. When you sent your son, uh, you didn't uh, send uh, anyone. Uh, you, sent, you came yourself to this earth uh, to die in our place. Uh, and when we see what a great thing it is, we, we appreciate again, we draw a deeper, freer breath, uh, knowing that our sin really is dealt with. And we thank you for that. And Father, there are so many ways our hearts would seek to distract us from that, to add to his work our own, uh, our own works, or to take away from his work by the way that we feel, or the way we feel we've failed. And we ask this morning, you would help us, by the power of your Spirit, to keep our hearts and minds centered on the love and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, Amen.